All right, we left off last week in chapter 14 of Revelation, verse 8, where John writes, Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Uh, we asked, what's unique about that verse back last week? And the answer was, it's the first time that Babylon, the, the phrase Babylon, is used in the book of Revelation. And what do we know about Babylon from the text? Well, Babylon is called Great, the Great. She is influential because she made all nations drink the, her wine. And what was her wine? Our answer gives us an indicator of what she's about. The wine was her sexual immorality, her lawlessness. Her wine was, uh, Babylon was sexual immorality that ties in with this lawlessness of that age. Now, and we concluded by asking, so who is Babylon here? Who is this being talked of or what is being talked of? And in the preterist camp, fulfillment camp, there's a division of who Babylon is here. Some say it's Rome. Now, Rome certainly fit of being some thing that promoted sexual promiscuity of that day. The second answer is Jerusalem. Some preterists say it's Jerusalem, and Jerusalem in the last days of that age certainly fulfilled the sexual uh, depravity as uh, they were all tied up in all sorts of things uh, there at the time, according to uh, Josephus' history. So we promise to get deeper into this when we get to chapter 16 and 18. At this point, John introduces us to another angel, and from verses 9 to 12... I think we're getting a reiteration that's important to the saints of that day, okay? And this is what John says. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and we know that, at least from my perspective, this beast is Nero back then, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also shall drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and he shall be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whosoever receives a mark, in its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. This is the application to the saints of that age. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So I want to talk about two marks now in Scripture relative to what we just read. And, and there's some really good stuff that we can clarify here through our study of Revelation that, might, that will be helpful to us. And there's something in Revelation about attributes, the name, mark, the, a mark, traits, being put on the foreheads of others. All right? A mark in Scripture is a seal or a sign or a frontlet, they call it. And it's placed on the forehead and on the hands as a sign of a curse or a sign of redemption. Now, this is nation of Israel. This is Jewish stuff. It goes way back. In Genesis 4.15, God places a mark on Cain for breaking uh, his law so nobody would kill him. Now, the LDS people have long said that that mark was black skin. Where they get that, I don't know. Uh, except there were some Christians definitely who taught that as well. That's the mark they say it is. Uh, but we don't know that to be the case. And, and Scripture says that, uh, does, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Indicating that skin is skin. That, that's how you're created. So it doesn't have anything to do with being cursed with a black skin. Anyway, we know that Cain had a mark placed on him, but we're not sure what that was. And conjecture all day long if you want. Exodus 28:26. priests of God wore a gold plate on their forehead and what that was emblematic of is that their mind had a renewal of God. 
So that's why they had wore that. Exodus 13 and Deuteronomy 6, a mark upon the forehead and on the hand is a symbol of total obedience to God. That's what it represented. So now we have marks in hands and marks on foreheads being representative of total obedience to God. So obviously very symbolic. So when we read of marks in Revelation, we may be talking about something literal, which is everybody wants to talk about. The mark of Nero is the 666 scratched in your head or tattooed by Satan in the middle of the night. And you wake up and you've got the mark of the beast on you. But that's just, not take, that's just taking it literally when it could be anything. Especially it could just mean the mind of God uh, or the mind of the beast. In Song of Solomon, it says at 8.6, a seal upon the heart and arm is symbolic of love for somebody else. And in Isaiah 49.16, it says that God has graven his people on the palms of his hands as a sign that he would not forget them. So this is some scriptural context of what marks and signs are in scripture. To let you know, Ezekiel 9.4, a mark upon the forehead was indicative of Allegiance to the Lord in the midst of abomination all around. Again, the mark on the forehead probably being what's in the mind or thoughts of a person, not necessarily an actual stamp or mark. Uh, And then we come to Revelation. And in Revelation 13, we've already covered it, the beast places a mark on the hand or forehead of his followers too. So we start to see both God places marks and and the beast places a mark. And, uh, and we have to decide what, what are those marks. And uh, in Revelation 14, where we are right now, and then in 16.2 and 19.20, those who receive a mark of the beast mean those who worship someone other than God will be tormented, which means, according to Revelation 9.4, those who do not have the seal of God in their forehead, here at the end times, those who do not have the seal or mark of God in their forehead, will be uh, part of those who have the mark of the beast in their forehead or on their hand. That's the distinguishing characteristic in the book of Revelation. And then if we move out to Revelation 20, verse 4, we learn that those who do not receive the beast's mark will be keepers of God's commandments and have the testimony of Jesus. That's how they're distinguished. If you don't have the mark of the beast, then you have a testimony of God and, and, uh, and his commandments. We'll also read in Revelation 15 two, quote, to keep the word of God is to overcome and be victorious over the mark or name or character of the beast. So there we have some synonyms of the mark of the beast. We have the, uh, that you receive in your mind and on your hand. The synonyms are that it could represent his name. It could represent his character as the beast. It's not just uh, a a specific mark representing a specific thing. It could be figurative, that you're just representing the character. And supporting or adding to this, Revelation 3.12 said that the name of God will be written upon those who overcome. We studied that back in Revelation 3. The name of God will be written upon those who overcome. And uh, so... And then, of course, in Revelation 22, 4, it says, Where will the name of God be written? It is sealed in their forehead. So now we have some working knowledge in Revelation that the name of God, for those who are not of the beast, will be written, or it will be an emblem, or it will be uh, his law, or it will be his character upon their forehead. And I think that just simply means, instead of some big fat tattoo here, it just means they have a mind for God, that they have God imprinted upon their mind, whether it's his name, his will, his character, all synonymous, it's imprinted upon them. So those who have that in these last days back then, they had the mind of God, and there were those who didn't, they had the mind of the beast. So Revelation 19.13 tells us exactly the nature of the name of God that will be written on their foreheads. It says this, it is, this is the name of God, this is what it says is the name of God, the Word of God. That is the name of God. The Word of God will be written in their minds, is how I would interpret it. And John 1 and 14 also suggests there's some allusion to that. So in other words, I think we can say that God's Word will be on the minds and hearts 
and souls of those who are his in this time before the destruction. And um, we could also say that Jesus, the word of God made flesh, was also written on their foreheads. And I would suggest that it's also written in ours today. That believers have God's name, God's word, on their minds. And non-believers do not. That's just simply how it's described. Now, a name represents someone's character. And that's why God changed his servants' names in the course of the Old Testament. And even Jesus did it with Peter. No longer are you going to call you Simon. I'm going to call you Petros or Petra. Uh, you're going to be the little rock. And so he gave him a, a new name. And we read of new names being given here. And God changes his servant's name in Genesis and 2 Samuel and as, a, as an emblem to say, you're no longer that former person. You are now someone who has the mind of God stamped, the word of God stamped upon your mind. Uh, God also tells people in Genesis and Isaiah, Hosea, Chronicle, First Chronicles, to, what to name a child to show that his hand is upon that child and the things that God wants them to do. So within the name of someone comes uh, when they're in the service of God, representing God's ways and not their own. It's also why men have chosen one name over another for a child. We see that in Judges and in Genesis. And why even cities' names have been changed in the course of scriptural history. Because the cities have changed to something different. Um, it's all to reflect a change of their character. A change of character when the name is changed. I'm, tell, I'm saying this so that we can see that name being imprinted upon a mind is synonymous with the character of that person who bears the name that's being imprinted upon our brain. So if you have the name of God, it's just a Hebrew way of saying you have the character of God. It's not the actual name. It just means the character of God. Therefore, it makes sense that God wants to seal his name, seal his character, seal his law upon those who are his. Isaiah uh, eight sixteen says, bind up thy law, seal the law among my disciples. So the imagery for this time at the end of the age was here in Rome and here in Jerusalem. Uh, the church age is wrapping up and God says, I have those who are mine. How can you distinguish those who are mine? They have the seal, the name, the character upon their, their foreheads is how it puts and those who are of the beast of the Roman Empire who follow Nero, who worship Nero, and worship all that Nero's about, which is heinous stuff. Uh, they have his image, name, character imprinted upon their mind. So you with me with all that? I think it's safe to say based on scripture that God's character, his name, his will, who he is, is equally presented, synonymously presented, uh, with his law, and uh, it is represented in his very nature. So, in other words, all that he is is reflected in all that he says. Everything that he is is reflected in the things he says, and the things that he says reflect his nature. And there's no contradiction in that. And so, uh, on the board, uh, are we able to put that up here for our audience here? On the board, because I don't know if you guys can see that up here, but what I've done is I've taken characteristics over here on the left side, and then I've given you a passage here, and then I've given you another passage there. And I just want to quickly run through this because I think it's important to hear this. And you don't have to look these up. I'll read them for you. But the first characteristic that we assign to God is he's good. Okay? God is good. And Luke 18 18 through 19 says, A certain ruler asked Jesus, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good save one. That is God. So we have the characteristics of goodness, and we have it being assigned to God. The interesting thing is that in every place where God has these characteristics assigned to him, that we also have the characteristic assigned to his law. All right? So let me give you the, the one up there is 1 Timothy 1.18. And it says, but we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. 
So God is good, and the law is called good in Scripture as well. We don't have a characteristic in the law that is different than from what God is. Okay? So you go to the next one, holy. Isaiah 5.16 says, But the Lord of hosts, that's Yahweh, shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. So we know God is holy. And then Romans 7.12 says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just and good. So we know that the law is perfect. We know, and we're going to get to perfect, I think, in here somewhere. Well, maybe, yeah, next one. Uh, so, but, so we know it's perfect. The problem is humans aren't. So the law, while being perfect representation of God, isn't applicable to us because we can't keep it. It's impossible for us to keep the law. Just like it's impossible for us to just go as natural men and women straight to God because he's, he's just and good and holy and he can't hang out with things that are not. So we have to have some mediation come in that says, we'll take care of that for you. His name's Jesus. So uh, the next one's perfect. Matthew 5, 48. And perfect's a really bad word in the New Testament, King James. Mature is better. Full, full is better. Be therefore mature, even as your Father which is in heaven is uh, mature. Meaning complete, right? And then Psalm 19, 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And then we have pure, 1 John 3, 2 through 3. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he, God, is pure. He's a pure God, pure in the sense of all goodness. And then when we turn to its corollary, Psalms 19.8, the statues of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Commandment can be interchanged with law, enlightening the eyes. So characteristic name, you, we, we can put name here too, if you want. We can put attribute, all given to God, all there in his law. I'm going to come to a point of why we're doing this in a second. He's just. And uh, so it's he is Deuteronomy 32. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth without iniquity. Just and right is he. And then Romans 7:12. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. For they say that in the scripture, every passage has its mate. And that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm mating up the passages to show you that there's a consistency between the concept of God and his law being one and the same. Uh, true, he that has received the testimony has set his seal that God is true. John 3, 33. Psalm 19, 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Uh, spiritual. This, this passage is fascinating, by the way. You meat eaters. Go check this passage out and see what you think it says. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 10.4. Paul writes, and, all, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Talking about the Old Testament. And he's saying that they followed the rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's a whole discussion. But we know he's, God is spiritual, right? They drank that spiritual drink. And then we say in Romans 7, 14, For we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. There's the whole thing. We are carnal. We're full of sin. The law is perfect and just. God is perfect and just. What do we do? We look to Christ. Jeremiah 23, 6, In the days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell in safety. And this is his name whereby he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. He is our righteousness, imputed to us by faith through his Son. Uh, Psalms 119, 172, My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. Uh, faithful, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful. Psalms 119, all thy commandments are faithful. He, him, law, same. In the last three, 1 John 4, 8, he's love. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. All right, Romans 13, 10. 
Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. And then unchangeable, James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There's no changing. He's immutable. He doesn't change. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle shall no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled, complete, unchanged. Nothing will pass from it till it's fulfilled. And then finally, God is eternal, Genesis 23, I mean, uh, 2133. And Abraham gave, planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And then Psalms 111, 7 through 8, the works of his hands are verity and judgments. All his commandments are sure. They stand forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. So those concepts there on the board, stay with me now, now that we've understood that. Let's go back and talk. We know from the word that at some point, God's law is written upon the hearts and minds of those believers. God says it's a future. It's after the age that I'm taking care of here with the Jews and this whole mix of everything going on. It's after that age, I'm going to write my law upon the minds and hearts of those. And and there's no more need for all this teaching each other and no more of this and no more of that because all will know me. It will be in their heart. And this is kind of what is being pictured here in Revelation. Those who are his who will be saved from the destruction will have his law, which means they will have God himself on their mind. That's how they will be known, as having God himself on their mind, not as having uh, Nero on their mind. Not as having the things of this world upon their mind. They will have God himself. And I would suggest, and we know that he's going to write his laws upon our minds and hearts from Hebrews uh, 10 and Hebrews 8 and Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36. All of them talk about, in that day, I will write. And so the question some of you might have to ask yourself is, do you believe we're in that day? Uh, many people do not believe we're in that day yet. That's why we take the Bible out and beat the heck out of each other, because... He hasn't written it on our hearts yet. We're still waiting for it, so we've got to go by this. And then someday it will be at a place where it will, Hebrews 10 will be fulfilled. I would suggest that God's mark then, which is him, is his law. It's imprinted on the souls of those who truly, simultaneously bear his name. And at the end of the day, perhaps this is truly the indication of who are his the sons and daughters, those who have had his law imprinted upon their minds and hearts. Because if the law of God is upon the hearts and minds of a person, then their actions from their hands and mouths will be from God. And we know that if the law of God is imprinted upon the mind and on the heart, and God is love, and God is, God is good, and God is perfect, and God is spiritual and righteous and faithful and unchangeable, if he is all those things and he's imprinted his laws upon our minds and our hearts, then we will be those things. And that is how you know who a true Christian is. It's not by the fact that they can cite chapter and verse. It's do they have God's law, who is God himself, printed, imprinted upon their mind and heart? And so, in, a, in effect, I'm not saying this is the case with us because we're human and carnal, but in effect, when you deal with somebody who is overflowing in the Spirit, you're dealing with God. You're dealing with God on earth, in a sense. Christ, of course, was God on earth fully, the fullness of God dwelling in him. But when you have that koinonia, that relationship with someone who loves God, you have that relationship that speaks beyond the things of this world and it, it, there's that uh, communication that seems to exist. And it's a spiritual knowing that goes on there. And that is what we are talking about when it's written upon our hearts. So we talk a lot about being regenerated and born again. It's a wonderful event. Uh, receiving the word of the Lord in the heart ground of our lives. It's, it's great. But the parable of the sower, which we talked about this morning, takes a lot of time to show that it doesn't stop with the seed being thrown on our heart. 
the parable is all about it taking root downward and growing up fruit upward, which is only possible if the word has been planted upon us, if it's been imprinted upon us. So that's the mark of God. Long story short, as a preface to talk about the mark of the beast, that's the mark of God that he talks about in Revelation 2. The beast wants to put his mark upon people of that day as well. Now, you can say the beast is coming and he's looking to put the mark upon us in the future, or that from the historicist view, that's a cycle that will continue to happen and the world is constantly trying to put its mark upon you. That's fine. But in the historical uh, preterist view of fulfillment, which history supports, Nero was trying to put his mark on everybody, and he put to death some, you know, upward of 100,000 or more Christians who wouldn't receive the mark. They would not let his mind become their mind or heart, and they were put to death for not denying Christ. So the mark of the beast itself seems to be teaching us indirectly that the Lord is kind of uncompromising when it comes to devotion. I don't mean to be hard-nosed here, but the lukewarm approach doesn't seem to be, and I'm, I'm talking about in love for us, but in that day it was don't go messing with Nero and what he's all about and have a foot in the church too. I am either on your brain or Nero's on your brain, and it's one of the other is going to determine your future state. That's what this whole book of Revelation is written to. Don't fall into that. Follow me, right? So therefore, we might see the beast representing kind of the archetype of all evil, the antithesis to God's goodness. In Scripture, the beast is identified in Daniel with kings of the earth. And it's identified in Revelation 17 as man-made kingdoms, whatever those kingdoms might be. Daniel 17 talks about it as well. And all of those kingdoms and kings, it says in Revelation 11, have the power to make war and kill. They, want, they have the power to snuff out those who have the mind of God in their heart and, and in their forehead. The beast is the government sometimes. It has rulers and armies sometimes. And they are against God and his servants, Revelation 19.19, 19, in that day especially. Jesus said, he that is not against me is for us. Those, those who are not against us are for us. So it's all that are against him. It's anything that's against the mind of God in a person. So rulers that enforce laws contrary to God's laws written on the heart and mind of those who are his could be seen as the beasts back then. Those who care about Nero's ways, worshiping the statues that we talked about, and being involved in what Nero did. There had to be parties in the gardens when he lit the Christians on fire. There had to be people there who were hanging out and enjoying the, the, the fireworks, so to speak. So it, everybody was not, did not have God's stamp on their mind. Many people followed Nero. In the end, followers of the beast receive his mark of ownership as opposed to the ownership God has on those who are his. And those who bear such a mark, we're going to read in a minute, are going to then face God's wrath. All right? While we have talked about the literal kerygma that they had with Nero's name stamped on it that you could buy and sell, and that's a historical facet of everything we're talking about, uh, we might suppose that the mark is just that spiritual sense. It's not literally having the mark of the beast with Nero's uh, imagery or uh, name on a paper to buy and sell, and everybody who had that. It could just be those who embodied what Nero represented and not be so literal about this big thing that we've kind of pumped up in our day. It's just an allusion, perhaps, to the Old Testament a view that if somebody had God on their four uh, hands and on their wrists and on their for, for, forefront of their mind, that that was where their allegiance went. Troubling as it may be, the language here seems to be all or nothing. And this is where we get into modern conversations of Christians um, who talk about, well, I don't want to take the mark. What if I, you know, if you listen to Colin Christian shows, 
on evangelical stations, it's kind of interesting because callers will say to a pastor who's a guest pastor, well, what do I do if I take the mark on accident? What do I do if I go to my employer? And they say, well, we're going to give you a pass here on this card that's going to allow you to uh, get more discounts at the commissary. Should I take it? And the whole concept is, what do I do if, if this is happening around us, right? Admittedly, it's kind of my opinion, but in Scripture here, in Revelation, it does seem like it's an either-or. You either are God's and you have his name marked in your brain, or you are the beast. It seems like it's that cut and dry. And if you accept the mark, and if it's a symbol of just your thoughts, that's what you are about, and there's no differentiating between the two. So, or there is differentiating between the two, complete differentiation between the two. So this view tends to occur with the words of Jesus, too. He's pretty emphatic when he says things like, you are light of the world. Uh, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, what good is it? Uh, you cannot serve God and mammon. They're very didactic. This is how it is. You can't. So we have that in Scripture. You cannot love father and mother more than you love me. These are very direct if or either or uh, statements. The parables are rife with examples of either or. We either have his law written on us or we don't. And at the end of the age, the threshing will occur and the angels will determine who truly does and who doesn't. So we are tapped in him as the vine, or we're not. We're producing fruit, or we're not. You can't be a tree that produces good and bad fruit. Did you know that? A good tree produces only good fruit. A bad tree produces only bad fruit. There's no tree, the way we would kind of look at ourselves today, as, you know, on these branches, I'm producing good fruit, and those branches, it's bad. That's not how it works within Jesus' horticulture. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree produces good. And it seems pretty either or. There's no dividing line with the, the way this talk goes. So in that age, there was no compromise with the beast. And that is a scriptural precedent that we're reading here. 2 Corinthians 6.15 says, What does Christ have with Belial? What part has a believer with an infidel? It does this separating bit here for a reason. Because Christ was coming back, Nero was in power, and Christ was going to take those who truly loved him, who wanted his mark upon their head and heart. And so they would have these divisions in that day. That was before the, the word was written on the minds and hearts completely, and the apostles were there governing the church, etc., etc. So, Scripture gives us a mark of God, and then here in Revelation, it provides us with the demonic opposite, the mark of the beast. Because we see this as the mark called 666, which we've discovered at length, that, that number is the number of a man. So, we're really talking about men or God in the in the. The, the final spectrum. Men or God, that's what is being laid out here. Nero uh, uh, representing all fallen men. God, of course, representing God. So we've described in detail the carnal, sinister nature of Nero as the beast of that age. Fulfilling that, ending it, in my opinion. Done. To align with him was to align with all that was against Christ because he was putting Christians to torturous deaths. It was to align yourself with everything that was against what was written true on the hearts of believers. And so the thinking in Revelation is, listen, don't kid yourself. You don't get to play both games here. You're either with me or you're not. We're talking about one hell of an age. We're talking about one brutal time to be a Christian. Uh, a true believer just could not follow the beast. And this leads me to another point for us to consider. We talk about whether, if I lived in that time, would I have taken on the uh, ideas of Nero or in, uh, the futurist? Will I take the mark of the beast and start calculating my groceries with a subcutaneous chip under my skin? You know, will I, am I good enough? Can I stand up to all this pressure or not? And you have to understand that the Christians of that day didn't really have a choice 
because his law was on their minds and hearts. They were his. So I don't think they ever were like, well, this is getting so hard. I think it was done. They were his. It was on them, and they didn't have a temptation. That's why we have a history in Fox's Book of Martyrs and from Suetonius and, and Tacitus and, and Diocassius, all these guys writing about how so many were put to death willingly, joyfully. Go ahead, torch me. Cut my head off. Do what you're going to do. Feed me to the lions. Do what you're going to do. I don't care. I don't care about this world. I have a stamp on my mind and heart that is of a different place. It's not concerned with Nero. I don't care what you're going to do to my body. And that is replicated time and time and time again by the Christians. I don't think that we talk about it being like this terrible hand-wringing choice. Oh, will I? And, and if you have God's mind in you, it's a no-brainer. You will do it because you're his. Whose are you, right? So a true believer just could not follow the beast. They were light and salt. And nothing, not even their failing flesh, not weaknesses in their soul, would allow them to turn against Christ because he, they had the stamp of the, on their mind and on their heart. So when people look, took the mark of the beast and aligned themselves with the beast, it was not proof of them failing the test. It was just proof they never were his to begin with. That's the way to see it. We don't have to worry about failing the test because we're, we're his to begin with. If you fail the test at the end of your life, whatever test that is that God has before you, it's probably because you never really were his. But if you are his, you don't fail the tests, if you understand what I'm saying. And I don't mean sinning and failing and the things of our carnality. I'm talking about tests of faith. I'm talking about looking to God as our sovereign who we love and adore in spite of circumstance. That's how it's, it's seen. So simple as that. We tend, especially in the age of futurism, to wonder if we're going to be strong enough to handle it. There's all this encouragement going on in futuristic churches. Get ready. Be strong. You know, resist. You don't, he, he's, uh, he's our God. You, you don't have to worry about that. Nero put tens of thousands of Christians to death through torturous methods and it was out of their hands. They were his. Uh, we've talked about this before, but online, they may have taken it down. There's a, an Arab guy, I say Arab, he was uh, a former Muslim, who, uh, hey, they, they just had it. Deny your faith. He's like, no. Deny your faith. And this guy wearing the black hood, I watched it. Sword, hand, out there in the desert. Deny your faith. Just sat there. Okay, bend him over. I watched it. And he didn't even let out a sound. He didn't scream. He didn't fight for his life. He just took it. Cut his head off right there. Because he's God's. If you're God's, you can endure things the way a good God would. The way his own son did. You turn the other cheek. You give love for evil. You forgive. They don't know what they're doing. They're misled. We don't follow it up with hatred. And, 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 and so the fruit of the Spirit is moving people who are his, right? So it's not a matter of the believer's ability. It's just a question of whether they have had God's stamp upon their minds and hearts. The question is how can you tell if you possess or if he possesses us in this manner? And our answers are pretty plain and apparent. Uh, do you do his bidding in your life or do you do your own? Um, meaning, do you love in the face of non-love? Do you have faith in the face of faithlessness? Uh, do you do all the things Jesus taught and Jesus did? And, uh, or do you not? You know, it's really a matter of uh, his will, God's will, or our will. And that's up to you to decide what it is. It doesn't play out the same way. I, don't, I think every individual has to determine what that is. This morning in James, we sang a verse. Um, the verse was, uh, to those... Of, of them who know to do good and do not do it, to them it is sin. The scripture doesn't say to, the, to God, to those of them who know to do good and do not do it, to God it is sin. It's a very subjective passage. You decide by the spirit in you what is sinful, what is not. Now that will, people will hate that. 
But it's true. We walk by the laws written on our heart. If to go out camping and shooting on, on Sunday or Saturday or whatever day is your Sabbath is your thing and you never step foot in a church and you're fine with God with that, do it. It's not sinful to you. If going on a Sunday or a Saturday from Friday night to Saturday night is, then you better follow what is in you that is right. So we have liberty in Christ, freedom in Christ, not the law pressing down upon us, causing us to do what everyone wants us to. You're free in that, you see. And, but if you know to do good and you don't do it to you, it is sin to you. And, and that's why we have a difficulty with other people telling us what is sinful and what is not. That has got to be decided by you, and you've got to stand before God. I remember when Chuck Smith was on the radio, and, a, and, a, and a, a, a man called, and his brother is living in South America, who had three wives. And he'd been living in polygamy with three wives, not a Mormon, just living in polygamy. And the brother came to know the Lord, and the brother's life changed. And all the clergy down there was telling him, now get rid of two of those wives. And, and the person said, what should he do, Chuck? He said, well, in my opinion, he should care for all three wives. They're his. He made them his wife. They're his wives. He should live it out. That's what was put, I mean, that's what the circus, I mean, I don't think God is coming and saying, now you're mine. Now get rid of two of them and let them go off and fend for themselves and keep one. You started this mess. Finish it out. Oh, people called like, you ought to be kidding to say something like that. Hey, that's how the Spirit works. We are at liberty to work within how God works. You don't have to worry about all this other stuff. Because He understands the motive of the heart. If to you it's sin, you best do what to you is, sin, is not sinful. Right? And that is the beauty of a relationship with God through Christ. So, at verse 9. And, the end, uh, and another angel, a third, followed them and said with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand. I'm going to, I have a lot of information here on hand, but I'm just going to touch on it quickly. Revelation 13, 6 says, the mark will be placed in the right hand. That's very symbolic in, script, in scripture. Jesus at the right hand of the power of God. And it's a symbol of power and authority. So when the mark is placed in the right hand, what it's saying is that you, you, in your life, have the power and authority of God working in you. Um, Psalms and Isaiah all state that the Lord is our right hand. So we say the Lord is our power. He is our authority. The right hand also denotes the power of the Lord. And then we know the power of Jesus Christ, that he's at the right hand of the Father. I've got about 12 passages here. He's at the right hand. What does that mean? It shows that Jesus did the work, gave allegiance to his Father, the power in his life. That is the right hand of the Father. That's what that's talking about. Ecclesiastes says that a wise man's heart is at his right hand. And that whenever you embrace the right hand, there is a, uh, that is what is in your heart. Whatever you embrace with the right hand, that is what's in your heart. So that's why Revelation is talking about the mark being in the right hand. Finally, the right hand is symbolic of what we value the most in Scripture. Some might claim that Revelation speaks of the mark being in the hand versus on the hand. Don't let that become a deal. It's a P in Greek, and it can be either in or on. All right? And also notice in Revelation 5 that uh, it doesn't mean inside the hand either. Just covering my notes really quickly. So, there's one other thought on this and these signs and these marks. There are people who would suggest that if they received, if you're a preterist, or if we receive, if you're a futurist, the mark in your flesh, that the thing in of itself is sin. That if you receive the mark, that is the sin that's unforgivable and you'll be destroyed. And this thinking conjures up ideas that says the mark, that even if the mark is enforced upon somebody, that they will be destroyed. This is kind of insane thinking that goes on out there in the religious world. That even if you were held down and they put the mark of the beast in your hand, you would be destroyed, you know. And it's, it goes against the entire reasonable teaching of the Bible. It doesn't matter uh, what actually happens. It's what's the heart and the mind behind the person that it's happening to. And that's always the case. So don't let the dogmas burden you down if you're a futurist. If you're going to stick with futurism, how you do, I don't know. But if you're gonna, don't get bogged down with, well, what if they force it up? Just trust God. 
you know, just, just drop that stuff. Okay, so if anyone worships the beast and its image receives the mark of the forehead or on his hand, verse 10, he also shall drink the, vi- the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and he shall be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is the call for endurance of the saints, the seven churches. This is the call I'm giving you, John says. This third angel says, this is the call of endurance of the saints who keep faithful the commandments of God and of Jesus Christ. So this third angel follows the other two and pronounces woe on those who worship the beast and receive the image in their forehead or hand. The consequences of rejecting God who has revealed himself to them through the law, through creation, through conscience, through Christ, are spelled out plainly. The ones who embrace the beast will experience God's wrath. Can't disagree with it. It's here. That's what they experience. The worshipers of the beast will drink the wine of God's wrath, is what it says, which is a full dose, unmixed, of his anger. That's how it reads. So the Greek word here, what, ask yourself, what is the full dose of God's anger contained in? It's contained in a cup. In the Greek, it's paterion. It's used 82 times in the New Testament. It can describe a vessel of any sort, but commonly in the Bible, it's a very shallow dish that doesn't even hold the contents of one of our teacups that we would use today. However, it can be used to describe blessings or cursings in Scripture. Psalm 16, 5, David calls the Lord my portion and my cup of blessing. Notice those words, my portion and my cup of blessing. He doesn't say the Lord is all blessings and all portions given to me. He uses it in terms of quantities. Okay, That's why cup is used here. In Psalm 116, 12 through 13, the writer declares, How can I repay the Lord for all the good that he has done for me? I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of Yahweh. He personally, she personally takes on the, the cup of salvation. When Isaiah 51, 17, the prophet says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, Jerusalem. You have drunk the cup of his fury from the hand of the Lord, who have drunk from the goblet of the dregs, the cup that causes people to stagger. So we know in Gethsemane, Jesus is agonizing over his impending future. It's there in his death, and he prays, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as you will. That's, that's, that's Matthew's 26 version. Moments later, Peter comes out, and he uh, cuts off Malchus, the high priest's ear, with a sword, and Jesus says, Put away your sword. Am I not to drink the cup my Father has given me? Of course, we know that the cup of Jesus, that Jesus was given, uh, was substitutionary and it was sacrificial with his death on the cross. A most bitter cup, scripture calls it, the one who did not know sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, is how it is put in 2 Corinthians. It's also a cup that for the joy that was placed before him, he drank. But now in Revelation, we read of a cup containing the wrath of God. Look at the imagery just for a second. Just reason with yourself. Compare it to what people describe as the afterlife punishment that scripture, that they say scripture speaks of. Okay? And it's difficult to reconcile the two with God who's described over here. It's difficult to take what people say Uh, about God uh, today and his eternal wrath that will be poured upon people forever and ever and ever who reject him or who don't receive Christ or who fail in whatever way they determine. And yet here we have a God who is uh, uh, holy, perfect, pure, just, true, spiritual, righteous, faithful, loving, unchangeable, eternal. He has the fruit of the Spirit. He knows all things, and yet he is going to take people who do not do what he wants, and he is going to 
have them suffer eternally in his hands. And one of the passages that are used to really support that is what we're reading here in Revelation. And what it does is it takes the content and it assigns what's happening to the people who did not take the uh, a mark of God, but the mark of the beast, the people who took the mark of the beast. And it takes that and that place in time and it assigns it to everybody. Okay? So, even in the case of those who assume the mark of the beast, notice that the container of God's wrath is a flowing river that never ends. No, it's a cup. It has a very small, I guess it could have said teaspoon for a smaller amount, but it's a cup of his wrath. And when you pour it out, it's good to the last drop, but it ends. It's not an eternal river pouring out. Even upon those who assume the mark of Nero uh, in their minds, in comparison, Jesus. He took the Father's cup that he gave for him to drink the dregs of our sin. He was on the cross for a limited period of time. He's not still on the cross suffering for our sin. It's complete. There's a be- That's why it's age-abiding. There's a period of time for these things. God works in time. We always talk about him not being outside space and time and all that stuff. He works within time. This many days, this many months, he talks about. So the cup is a limited duration of whatever God is going to pour out. Here it is. They shall also drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And here we go. This is what makes it tough. This is where people think that cup just keeps pouring. And he shall be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Okay, the next verse is going to tell us because the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. All right, let's talk about it. And we'll wrap it up. In the context of the place and time, we have to remember these are beast worshipers. What these worshipers were saying was in the presence of Christ having come in their age, the apostles having come in their age, gone out and shared, what those beast worshipers are saying is, we like what our beast father, master, is doing to our uh, fellow Christians. We support that. Stamp of approval. That's our mind. Torture them. Nero, invite us to your garden while you light them on fire. Boil them in oil. We want to be part of that. Okay? Nero was allowed to kill 100,000 Christians in the least, torturing them to death. God's wrath for that action is in a cup. It's the wrapping up of an old covenant and a new covenant with Christ coming in together. It's the ending of that, and so we're going to have this fallout. We saw it all through the Old Testament, too. And these passages are errantly used to endorse afterlife punishment upon people today, by telling them that they are worshiping the beast in the same way and they are killing Christians and supporting that in the same manner that is it's not contextual it's not right it's 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 salad bar uh, it's buffet choosing what you like and putting it on the plate and throwing it out it doesn't have context so where these souls assume the short solution of worshiping the beast in their day picking Nero and his ways over Christ the end result was frighteningly bad And remember, that end result happened after John received this revelation. This revelation was to them about the end result of those people who were siding with Nero. And that's why John says, They will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and smoke of their torment shall go up forever and ever. So let's take a minute to look at that text. Contextually, Revelation 14 is talking about that specific group of people at the end of that age. It's about people who took the mark of the beast during what many call the Great Tribulation. John is describing the day they're going to meet God. This third angel is telling them what's going to happen to these who are doing it. The same shall drink of the, uh, 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 the cup of the wrath of God, and the smoke of their torment will ascend up forever and ever. It's very important to notice where they are. Where are those people who receive the mark of the beast who are now receiving the wrath of God in the cup, in, where are they? They are in the presence of the holy angel and the lamb. Okay? Because of that, we might believe that they are in the presence of the Christians too. 
I mean, because we teach that when you die, you go to God. When they died, they would be with Christ. So if they're in the presence of the Lamb and His holy angels, we might suggest that the Christians are there too. And they're watching God's wrath poured out upon these people who took the mark of the beast. Remember, this is the end of that age. This is the wrap-up of all of those who turned from Christ and turned to the beast. It's obviously that they were standing before the great white throne judgment that we're going to read about in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22. And that's their judgment day. And this has nothing to do. Let me rent my clothes. I would do it if I wasn't so ugly under this thing. Let me rent my clothes. This has nothing to do with hell. Nothing to do with hell. Hell does not have this fire present. Hell is a dark covered place for the Old Testament. It has nothing to do with Sheol. It has to do with the punishment poured out upon those who receive the mark of Nero in, the, in their thriving bloodlust against Christians. Okay, recall the, now listen, this is a good one. Recall what Jesus said in his parable of Luke 1927. He says, I say unto you that unto everyone which shall be given from him that hath not, even has he that has shall be taken away from him. What he's talking about there is the parable of the talents. If you don't have it, you'll be given. If you have it, you'll be taken away. That's what he says. Now listen to carefully what he adds to it. But those, but those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither, this is what he has the judge say, and slay them before me. Slay them before me. This is the parable Jesus teaches about what will happen at the end. And he says, but of my enemies, those that wouldn't allow me to reign over them in their heart and in their mind, having the law imprinted, bring them to me and slay them in front of me. Now, angels are always known for being the ones that are carrying out God's uh, retribution. And so we have in the presence of the Lamb and the holy angels, those who receive the mark of the beast, receiving the cup of his wrath through the fire and torment of God, the presence of God. I don't think it was uh, punitive. I think it was purgative still. I think the fact that they built their whole house on Nero, they simply stood before God and it was fire time. They couldn't stand his presence. They weren't covered in in the shed blood of Christ. So I don't see it as punitive. I still see it as redemptive, as to try to purge out whatever was there and get whatever was left. Without a doubt, there is something very uncomfortable going on here, but is it what traditional evangelicals say is happening? I absolutely cannot agree with that. Not because of my own uh, opinions. It's because that's what the word is saying in context. We have to wonder if the torment with fire and brimstone and eternal smoke takes place in the presence of the Lamb and the holy angels, and if they are all laughing and having a good time. You have to wonder in the context of the characteristics of God, if that's what people are doing with those who tormented and killed, or were they maybe encouraging them to get through? It's okay. You're going to make it through. Who, you know, which way would we suggest Christians behave today? But in heaven, it's going to be different when the, when the people who turned against us are tormented? Um, we also have to wonder about the duration of this punishment, especially in light of Jesus' teachings on punishment, mercy, justice. Um, then we have to ask about the word forever. This is the, the coup de grace to people who don't believe it's forever, this, this passage. Reread it. It clearly says the smoke will rise forever. Rising smoke forever is much different than torment going on forever and ever. You got to understand the difference there. It does not say their torment will go on forever and ever. It says the smoke will be forever. It's not a proper hermeneutic to view scripture and revelation apart from how the Bible uses it in other places. When in other places, the Bible clearly talks about smoke that will ascend forever and ever, but it does not mean forever and ever and ever. It just means it's a symbol of it being done. Look at Isaiah. He's talking about the city of Edom. And he says, quote, the smoke thereof shall go up forever. Where's Edom today? Where's its smoke? Is it smoking today? It's a figure of speech. So even though it uses the word forever there in terms of the smoke going up, it's not the torment. The torment is contained in the cup, a limited quantity upon those people. 
Edom was destroyed. The smoke rising forever meant it was a statement of remembrance, not a literal event. So obviously no smoke in Edom today, and yet that language is used. We also read in Isaiah 34.10 that while Edom was burning and night, uh, that the city would send, uh, would the city smoke would go up forever and ever. That's Isaiah 34.10. Use that in your references because it's another evidence. Forever and ever does not mean forever and ever. It's a Hebraism to say it's showing it was completed or done. Uh, The language simply signifies that the torment of the wicked will lead to that permanent, irrevocable destruction of their wickedness. And the smoke shows it's happened. It's gone up. And that's what, it, that's what I think it is saying. And this is perhaps the only interpretation of Revelation 14, 9 through 11, that makes sense when we take in context of who it was being said to, seven churches, Nero being the beast, God writing his laws on the hearts of believers then, the wrath of God in a cup being poured out upon those who accepted the mark of the beast and followed him instead of Jesus and his apostles, and the characteristics of God by name that we have to incorporate into the way he handles people who are difficult, recalcitrant, or rebellious. All right, we'll continue on next week. Comments or questions? And, and uh, Patrick is our Vanna White this afternoon. Timothy's on line one. Let's take him while the others are thinking. Timothy. Hey, How you doing, brother? So what's up? Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I was I was I was listening to some of your teachings over the last week, and I noticed that you uh, a little bit uncomfortable with the doctrine of the Trinity, and I've wondered if you've considered uh, biblical Unitarianism. I've been doing a lot of reading on that over the last couple of years, and it seems like a more logical and therefore a true interpretation, basically that the Father is the one true God and that Jesus is the Son of God, you know, um, a human being begotten of the Father in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and um, so the mediator, the way to the Father, the way to God, not God himself, um, you know, the Trinity has basically different definitions of God. On the one hand, they say Jesus is God. On the other hand, they say the Trinity is God. But um, it's a lot of confusion, obviously. And so uh, I guess some people might be oneness. They might say Jesus is the Father. That is not true either, because why would he pray to himself? But I really think the testimony of Scripture is that the Lord our God is one Lord. Um, You know, he's the I am, not the we are. And so... Um, yeah, a whole host. I think, I think it's really a consistent thing. There's a lot of teaching out there, and it really seems to be the truth. And I just wonder if you ever considered it. Yeah, I've, I've considered a lot of it, uh, Timothy. And in fact, on February 13th, uh, here at Tuesday night, we're going to have James White, uh, apologist extraordinaire. He's coming in from Arizona to sit, and we're going to have a discussion. And, uh, yeah. and we're going to talk about those things. And at that time, I'm going to uh, try to articulate better what how I view it. I don't have, see, Timothy, my deal is I don't have a problem with people who want to see God in terms of a trinity or a binity, even a modalist. If they believe that God is God, there is one God, and Jesus is the Son of God who saves us, I just have to just leave it up to God to work with all of us to figure the thing out. That is how I see it right now. I'm not dogmatically standing on one point or another, but I, I do not, I dogmatically do not agree with senior God with a long gray beard and Jesus junior God with a shorter brown beard and cousin Holy Spirit uh, existing co-eternally forever and ever together and they make God. That one I can't buy. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of people have different understandings of what the Bible teaches regarding who God is. Yeah. And we have to have grace on them. I think... I think it can turn into different gods if you, like, like you know, if you really get dogmatic about it and you exclude the other person and things like that. But, yeah. but no, you're right. I think we definitely have to have grace, and we can't just like exclude one another based on 
our particular understanding of the complex doctrine of Scripture. Amen, brother. Really appreciate you watching. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks. God bless you. Yeah, God bless you too. Thanks. Okay, bye. I wonder if Timothy knows that this is campus and not the show. Do people know that it's campus? Anybody in here have a comment or question? Arvana White just fell asleep on the couch. Is that it? Do we have anything else? Michael on two. Brother Michael, what's up? Hey, good. How about you? Good. How you doing? Good, good. Hey, you got to stop picking on Patrick, man. He's a good guy. Oh, oh, he's loving that. He's over there gloating in his... You, you really... I'm your brother, Patrick. I'll stick up for you. <laughs> we have a coup going on. <laughs> there we go. Hey, I wanted to give a quick comment. You know, um, I'm listening to everything preterist nowadays. But I listened to this audio by Gentry that was uh, pretty amazing how he made a statement. He said, every, most every Christian is a preterist because the, all the prophecies that were spoken of in the Old Testament and stuff that came to pass is the past for us. Okay. So therefore, that is a form of preterism. Oh, absolutely. Said. Yeah, so, and that's all preterist means, is that we believe things have been fulfilled. Okay. Just yeah. like when Jesus rose from the dead, that was a prophecy made about that, and it came into fulfillment. I love that, Michael. We believe that today. It takes away some of the onus of preterism. When if you say, well, do you believe exactly. Jesus was resurrected? Yeah, well, then you're a preterist in that view. I, I love that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. So I just wanted to give that... Give that comment today. Thanks, my brother. God bless you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Well, good comments from our viewing audience at home. Let's pray. <clears throat> this morning, Lord, we had eight people on here who are suffering from cancer, and we can't find that list. So we just lift them up. You know who they are and, and everybody. You know, we just, we're told to pray, and we do it in faith, and we do it because we uh, seek to lift up people who are suffering to you. And so we just pray for all of them. And, and uh, we pray for Diana and uh, not cancer, but definitely uh, debilitating disease and working through that. And everybody else, Lisa, who wasn't on our list this morning, we pray for her and her battle with cancer. And it just seems to be a growing, uh, growing ugly uh, thing in our lives. And we just pray for people whose health is is bad and who are suffering with it and that your presence will be made known and that you will do healings when it's your will and if not that there will be your grace and spirit and love and understanding and growth we pray for those who are struggling with other things in this life finding jobs and keeping the uh the bill collectors at bay and and uh, all the uh, relationship issues and people who feel lonely and depressed and all the things that come with this life and we are so grateful that we have you who came and, and overcame and fulfilled these things for us. We pray your blessings upon those who are watching at home, people who just called in and their families and everybody else and everybody here who takes the time to come to the studio church and consider what the word is saying. We pray you'll guide us now as we exit from here. We'll be better Christians, that we will have your law, your will, your character upon our minds as we exit from here and we'll be known by the love that we share uh, that we are yours. And uh, just help us in all these different ways until we meet again in Jesus' name. Amen.